You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. I knew as Women's History Month came around, I wanted to bring back a former guest, Kristen Stoltz Presley, better known as Dr. Broadway. Now, she's a theater historian who has focused a lot of her time and studies on one particular lyricist and librettist, Dorothy Fields. She's an amazing writer who worked before, during, and after the golden age of the Broadway musical. And Kristen has just written a new book covering the life and work of this amazing artist. Dorothy was very careful to help not just women, but anyone whom she could help, whether it be another artist, a collaborator in the theater, or one of the many charities that she worked with throughout her career. Hello, I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, actor, singer, and host of Why I'll Never Make It, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com where you can sign up for the monthly newsletter, get access to members-only episodes, and learn more about services and organizations helping artists just like you. And this week, I'd like to feature one specific organization, Maestra Music, a nonprofit founded by former guest Georgia Stitt and seeks to promote and support female musicians. Their website is maestramusic.org. This week for Women's History Month, I'm sharing a special conversation with Dr. Broadway about Dorothy Fields, a prolific writer and collaborator with some of the most iconic and legendary composers in Broadway history. Now, in our previous conversation back in Season 2, Kristen Stoltz-Presley and I talked about the Tony Awards and musical theater history in general. And one of the artists she mentioned was Dorothy Fields. Well... She has now written an entire book about this lyricist and librettist. And while the name may not be familiar to you, her songs and musicals are certainly well known. From her first big hit, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby, to one of her most enduring songs, The Way You Look Tonight, her lyrics have appeared in many tunes from the great American songbook. And her musicals, like Annie Get Your Gun and Sweet Charity, have received numerous Broadway and regional productions. And even though it's been 47 years since her passing, there is still a lot of work to do to showcase and highlight the important contributions of this remarkably versatile songwriter, whose career spanned nearly 50 years. In part two of our conversation, Kristen and I will dig more into her works and writing style and how she approached writing female characters. But we start off today with what makes Dorothy Fields so special and why she has become such a focal point and standout in Kristen's research. 
Well, hello, Kristen. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, it is so good to be back with you. Thank you for having me. I have thoroughly enjoyed watching your podcast as it has grown. You've done some really exciting things and talked to some incredible people. And so it's been a, a real joy to watch it. Well, congratulations, by the way. Yes, thank you for being a listener as well as a guest. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. good to have you back. And so what was it that drew you to Dorothy Fields and, and why did you want to write a book about her? Well, to be honest, I started studying Dorothy Fields when I was a master's candidate at the University of Kentucky. And one of the bugaboos about graduate school is they expect you to have a research project. And the real catch is it needs to be something no one else has ever researched before. <laughs> so it can be pretty tricky because uh, if it's something that no one's ever researched before, how are you going to know about it, right? And how are you going to find research about it? Exactly. So you're really starting from scratch. So I went to graduate school, a bright-eyed, probably, I don't know, 20 23, 24-year-old, knew I wanted to study musical theater. I was in the theater department, uh, had no idea what that specific topic would be that I would research for the next two years. Actually, I was planning on doing a PhD, so it would have been the next four years. I knew it would be related to musicals. I knew it would be related to the golden age of the musical. So I was thinking Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Oscar Hammerstein. I, I loved lyrics, and um, each of these wrote lyrics, so that was something that I was already drawn to. But every time I would talk with my um, advisor, she was like, mm -mm, mm -mm. we know everything about Cole Porter. Everything's been done about Oscar Hammerstein. There have been books written about and by Irving Berlin. So she would just keep shooting it down. And rightfully so, because I needed what was going to be my contribution, right? What was, what was going to be my, uh, something that I could add to the, you know, academy, so to speak. And so as a person of faith, I literally prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And one day in her office, it was as if I saw this blinding vision across my eyes and it just was the name Dorothy Fields. And I knew nothing about Dorothy Fields, except that I recognized her name from the show card from Sweet Charity, 1966 Sweet Charity. Um, and, and I had seen that show card so much. I of course had the CD in my collection. So I, and the, the CD case looked very much like the show card. And so I just blurted out, well, what about Dorothy Fields? And my advisor stopped and said, I don't know anything about Dorothy Fields. And so that was 2003. I went home and it was the very early days of Googling. There, there was not much on the internet yet, <laughs> but there was enough that I could see, oh my goodness, this woman wrote The Way You Look Tonight. This woman wrote I'm in the Mood for Love. This woman wrote On the Sunny Side of the Street. This woman was the brain power behind Annie Get Your Gun. She came up with the idea to do a show about Annie Oakley. And uh, so I went back to my advisor at a different class that night and told her, what do you think about this. This is what I found out. And she goes, let's do it. Uh, so it's been almost two decades that I've been at this, but I continued that work not only for my master's, but also for my doctoral dissertation, which I ended up doing my PhD at the University of Georgia. Uh, but I took Dorothy with me when I went from Lexington to Athens. Dorothy came along for the ride. You basically were looking at her life from, you know, a more academic educational standpoint. So what makes this book different from those dissertations? That's actually a great question. You know, it's funny because when people ask me what the book is about or have asked me over the past 20 years what I was researching and I would mention Dorothy Fields and everybody's like, mm, don't, I don't know her. But then you you mention song titles. You say, uh, Hey Big Spender, she wrote that. Or Pick Yourself Up, she wrote that. Or On the Sunny Side of the Street, she wrote that. Everybody gets that same like, oh, 
Aha, I know her, but they didn't know that they knew her. In my master's thesis, that's one question that I asked was, why is her name not as well known as Porter? And and all of those men, not only were they collaborators of hers, but they were very well-loved colleagues who esteemed Dorothy as one of them. And there's a couple of suggestions for that. One is she was never part of a team that, that lasted for a long time. So by that, I mean... Rodgers and Hammerstein, that that is an iconic duo, or um, Rodgers and Hart even, or Irving Berlin wrote music and lyrics, Cole Porter music and lyrics. Um, but Dorothy Fields wrote with 18 different composers over a five-decade-long career. So there was it was never easy to pinpoint her as, oh, well, that's a, f-, I mean, the closest would be Jimmy McHugh, who was her first collaborator, but a Fields and McHugh song, or a, it just, it just, there, it, that never happened with her. It never became a, a catchphrase. Another suggestion is because she was very self-effacing. You know, if she was asked in an interview, oh, well, tell us about this experience writing with Arthur Schwartz or whatever, she would immediately turn it around and say, well, let me tell you how great it is to work with Arthur. You know, she would always shine the spotlight on her collaborator. Um, And so that's another reason why perhaps she didn't seek the spotlight. And it wasn't until later in her career she became concerned with legacy and she hired a publicist and and that happened um, in the late 1950s as I think her collaborators, her brother died unexpectedly. Her husband died unexpectedly. Um, Her, her dear friends and collaborators were beginning to die. And I think she realized at that point, Hey, maybe I am concerned with being remembered and I do need help to accomplish that. So this book then takes a third approach to her, which is uh, just as a straight biography. It's just learning who was this woman, what did she accomplish? And when you learn what she was able to accomplish, particularly given when she was able to accomplish it, she is one of the most fascinating um, characters of the 20th century to me. In fact, there was a book that I referenced in my master's thesis called 50 Great Americans Who Shaped the Century But Missed the History Books. And Dorothy Fields was one of them because her music was so impactful, but nobody knew her name. And that's something that you mentioned in the book that she would often, when it came to women writers, that she would talk and mention these other women rather than talk about her own self. And so I assume that in that time period, it felt important for her to shine that like, I'm not one, you know, there's not just one female writer, there's a plethora to choose from. So it seems like that that was important for her to, to kind of spread the wealth and, and spotlight. Absolutely. And she was very, very um, faithful to offer a leg up to anyone that she could help. So whether that be a young reporter who wanted to interview her, she was very open to that, but also to helping other women. In fact, in the late 1950s, I think I might be wrong on the timing of that, but I believe it was the late 1950s. Mary Rogers, um, the daughter of Richard Rogers, and and Mary was probably in her early 20s, if not late teens at that point. She said, would you like to write a song together? Because she appreciated uh, Mary's skill as a composer, but also just wanted to give her a leg up, um, you know, and help her to not that Mary Rogers needed any help getting a leg up with a father like Richard Rogers. But nonetheless, Dorothy was very careful to help not just women, but anyone whom she could help, whether it be another artist artist, a collaborator in the theater, or one of the many charities that she worked with throughout her career. Now, how does Fields compare to other female writers? What what sets her apart from them? 
Well, um, a couple of things. One would be that she started earlier. Now, uh, you're right. In the book, I mentioned several composers. There is this misnomer that she was the only woman writing. And she was not the only woman writing. She was just the most prolific woman writing. She had the most success. And I think one of the reasons for that is her willingness to change and adapt to new sounds. So, for instance, um, as, as music changed, so did the way that she, the, the composers that she worked with, the, the lyrics that she used. You know, she can write a very uh, kind of demure idea with pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. But by 1966, when she's writing um, a very jazzy, rocky score with Cy Coleman, she's writing lyrics like, hey, big spender, spend a little time with me. You know, so she was willing to adapt. She didn't think, oh, I'm in this idyllic. I'm not going to pigeonhole myself as being a golden age writer. As the golden age, as we morph from the golden age to whatever comes next, I, as a as an artist, am going to to morph and bend with those times as well. Yeah, because her time span, she had big hits, you know, starting at the 20s, which was, which was a, a very distinct musical style, all the way through to the 70s, which is yet another very distinct musical style, and found success in each of those. Absolutely. She was successful at every stop. She started in 1927 writing shows for the Cotton Club in Harlem. So that was a very jazzy, dancey. And even before that, she was writing songs that were the, the dance hall craze. So Collegiana, see how it's, I mean, just very rhythmic, Charleston-y kind of dance moves. And then at the end of her career, she's writing with Cy Coleman, who not only was much younger than her, but was a completely different kind of writer. And it worked. Sweet Charity was a big hit. Um, in fact, the day that she died, um, which was in March of 1974, she had just come home from a rehearsal for the national tour of Seesaw, for which she wrote the lyrics with Cy Coleman's music. Um, the day that she died, she found out they were nominated for a Tony Award. And the thing is, she also won an Academy Award. So she bridged that gap between Broadway musicals as well as movies. Now, how easy was it for her to bounce back and forth between the two mediums? Well, they were very, very different. She much preferred working in New York. But here's what happened. And this is kind of just interesting historically speaking. So she was working in New York, writing on Broadway, um, had a very, very, very successful show on Broadway called Lou Leslie's The Blackbirds of 1928. That's where I Can't Give Anything But Love Baby came from. Um, had several shows running on Broadway and then the stock market crashes. But also at the same time that the stock market crashes and New York is just left in a shambles, um, the film industry is beginning to boom. Right. And one of the most popular forms of films were musical films. So what did they need in Hollywood? They needed songwriters. Well, what did the songwriters need? Because nobody could afford to go to the theater in New York. They needed jobs. And so most of them went to Hollywood in the 30s. And she went with Jimmy McHugh, who was her writing partner at the time. Uh, the Gershwins were out there. Cole Porter was out there. Most of the of the East Coast talent went west, and they worked for the studios. And it was a drastically different way of working. Uh, and most of them kept made it into their contracts. They would be contracted just like an actor would be contracted with a studio. So you might make two thousand dollars a week um, to work for MGM or RKO or whichever studio. They would put it also in their contract that they could 
work in New York as well. So if the opportunity came to work on a show in New York, they could go back and forth. They were not exclusive in that sense. But she had grown up. Her father was a producer. She was very well known in and around New York circles and knew the New York theater community. It was a very collaborative way of working. And she loved that. She loved developing a show. She was very much a storyteller at heart and loved working with them. Hollywood was a totally different beast. Uh, And the way that they worked out there was they would write a song, sit in a little, you know, cubicle, like a practice room at a college, uh, herself and whatever composer she was working with. And then they would, you know, hand it over to the the filmmakers. And that was it. She, She said very often we'd forget the songs we had written until we saw it on the screen. And she would be, she said, I would be amazed at the things we had written because I'd completely forgotten about it. So she did not love the way of working in Hollywood. She did, however, love the paycheck. (laughs) Um, But as soon as she was able to get back to New York regularly, she did. Particularly as L.A. grew, she really didn't like L.A. at all. And of all the shows that she worked on, did she have a favorite song or musical, one that she was most proud of? Yeah, The Way You Look Tonight, for which she won the Oscar, that was her favorite song. And in fact, uh, she said the first time Jerry, Jerry, Jerome Kern, if I may call him Jerry, like she she actually um, called him Junior as well. She always had nicknames for her collaborators, but they were working on a score for Swing Time, which was a 1936 film with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And he played the song, the melody for The Way You Look Tonight. And she said it was so beautiful that I stopped and cried. She just was so moved by it. And in fact, when Jerome Kern saw her hesitation to it, that she didn't just, you know, immediately start working or leap for joy. She was just taken aback by it. He assumed she hated it. And so he was like, okay, we won't use it. We won't use it. And she was like, no, 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 no. It's not that I hate it. It's that I love it, you know. Um, But can you imagine if they would have gone with his impulse, which was, okay, if you don't like it, we'll throw it away. And one of the most beloved songs of the 20th century, we wouldn't have it. Um, But that was definitely her favorite that she wrote. And like I said, she won the Oscar for that. Um, And she was the first woman to win an Oscar for a song. It was, I believe, the ninth Academy Award. Um, but, But startlingly, there have not been that many more women to win Oscars for songs, which I, which I, uh, which is a point I make in the conclusion of the book. It's kind of startling how few. It's it's just an interesting thing. For a lot of songwriters, you know, we we've mentioned Porter and, and Hammerstein, the Gershwins. Their songs became synonymous with the musicals, with themselves. But I think any composer, any writer. If a celebrity like a Frank Sinatra, The Way You Look Tonight, or these these kind of big-name stars latch on to a particular song of yours, it can take it to a whole nother level that the movie or the musical didn't. Was there a particular singer or artist that she that she really loved or or appreciated what they did with her her songs? You know, I can't I can't think of one right away. I can say she frequently worked with women like Pearl Bailey. She did a couple of shows with Pearl Bailey as one of the lead actors in the show, and then she did a couple of shows with Shirley Booth as well. So she worked um, frequently with um, some of the same performers. But as far as was there one singer? I can't really think of one um, except to say that she was thrilled whenever anybody chose to use her music, you know, as as any songwriter would be. Now, she never actually wrote the music herself. She she could play with on the piano, but she never actually wrote any music for her lyrics. 
Correct. She could play the piano. In fact, one of the jobs that she had prior to becoming a lyricist was she played the piano in a dance studio. So she could play the piano, um, but no, she never wrote music of her own. She was always a, a a word girl. Uh, in fact, she won poetry contests in high school. So words were always her cup of tea. And did she consider herself to be better adept at writing for female characters or male characters? Or what was there a difference to her in how she wrote? No, she would write for anybody. You know, in fact, early on uh, in her career, she told her father was a vaudevillian um, named Lou Fields, who was part of Weber and Fields, which was a major, major um, producing team, but also a vaudeville team, one of the most beloved comedic pairs um, of the century. And he had a a joke that was kind of um, iconically his, and she would riff on his jokes often. Um, And one time, in fact, she was asked, when she was writing for the Cotton Club, he said, why would you write for them? And she said, I'd write for the Westchester Kennel Club if they'd let me. She just <laughs> wanted to write. So, no, she she made no distinction between male or female. It didn't matter to her. She just wanted to work. And did her writings, did she ever kind of infuse a bit more of woman power, so to speak? It's interesting that you brought that up because that there is my dissertation, the unintentionally feminist lyrics of Dorothy Fields. Um, Yeah, because she didn't intend it. But when you look at the characters that she wrote, I think of two in particular that are my very favorites. One is Arms and the Girl, which was written about the American Revolution. And um, she wrote the libretto. And she writes this female character who wants nothing more than to wear short pants like the men of the day would have and to fight for General Washington. Like, that's what she wants. She's a girl with the flame. She wants to fight with General Washington. I don't know that there's an analogous character. I mean, you you compare that to... Um, the American Revolution story as told in 1776. Now, granted, it was was written 18 years prior to 1776. But in 1776, you've got, what, three, maybe two, two or three female characters. Right, right. It's all about the men. Right. It's very, very forgettable. But how does Dorothy frame her story about the American Revolution? Well, she sees it through the eyes of this woman who wants nothing more than to fight like the men. I don't know of anybody else writing that at that time, right? And then there's another, probably my favorite of all the characters that she wrote. It would be one of the Shirley Booth roles for a show called By the Beautiful Sea. Lottie is a, she owns a bed and breakfast, a boarding house uh, on Long Island. So she is a woman of agency and the show is set at the turn of the century and she is in love with this actor and the actor has a daughter who hates Lottie. And so Lottie says, you know what, if I'm not going to, I'm not going to settle for anything less than the best. So if your daughter hates me, I don't want her to sabotage our love. So I'll just keep, keep moving. Um, Eventually things work out, but nonetheless, it's, it's a kind of a backbone in that character that we don't see in a lot of golden age women. And so in that way, yeah, Dorothy was writing females that weren't anywhere else on the stage at that time, but it wasn't like she was doing it intentionally. That's why I, I put as the tagline to my dissertation, the unintentionally feminist lyrics. 
there was definitely feminism there, but it was certainly not something that she was trying to do. Because a character like Annie Oakley is definitely much more in your face feminist and and, and pushing, you know, anything you can do, I can do better, that kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. And, and, and like I've said, um, that was Dorothy's idea to write about Annie Oakley. So her female characters are fascinating. But also, I mean, look at Sweet Charity. Now, Neil Simon wrote the book for Charity, but she wrote the lyrics. I mean, that's not an ideal love story, right? And yet we see Charity saying, you know, there's got to be something better than this, right? Something better than all these dime a dozen guys. And it was certainly not something that she ever set out to do. She didn't say, oh, I'm going to tear up Broadway and, and and bust through the glass ceiling. But she was certainly approaching female characters in ways that Hammerstein did not. Certainly Cole Porter did not. And even Berlin she saw things from a completely different way, which I think is one of the reasons why she's such an important figure in the American theater, because she was a voice, a mouthpiece for women when there weren't a whole lot of mouthpieces for women on the commercial stage. Grammy Award-winning writer and music critic Stephen Holden had this to say about Dorothy Field. No lyricist had a more fluent gift of the gab than Field. The only woman to achieve full acceptance into the boys' club of great American songwriters. She was a writer whose words were definitely meant for the stage, and yet had a very conversational and everyman relatability about them. 35 years after her death, her words showed up in the first inauguration speech of Barack Obama. Quote, Starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. This echoes the lyrics from her song, Pick Yourself Up, from the 1936 film Swing Time, for which Jerome Kern had written the music. But in that movie, it was Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire who sang her words, Pick Yourself Up, Dust Yourself Off, and Start All Over Again. Well, in part two of my conversation with Kristen, we'll be starting all over again as well with a look at why Dorothy Field's father didn't want her to get into the business that had brought him so much success. And you'll even hear from Fields herself in an interview she conducted back in 1960 about her work and collaborators. All that and more on the next episode, which is also in conjunction with Maestro Music. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Music in this episode by Latch Swing and Crowander. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me and Kristen next time as Women's History Month continues here on Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.